Okay, good afternoon. I guess the elevator got stuck. Welcome to the eighth annual lecture of the Priscilla Glickman Ivy Lecture Series with our guest, Martin Scorsese. I want to thank you all for coming today. My name is Neil Chrisman, class of 1958, and I'm a founder and co-chair of the Glickman Committee, along with Sarah Hermanson, who is sitting in the audience over there from the class of 95, uh, who was the chair of the undergraduate committee in that year. This series has a rich, rich heritage, born because of a tragedy, but inspired by the character, energy, and memory of its namesake, our fellow Princetonian and Ivy member, Priscilla Glickman. The lecture brochure, which most of you, and I guess all of you, picked up on the way in, amply presents the background, the history, and the mission of the series. And I'll not repeat it from the podium. Suffice it to say that an event such as today's needs a broad network of support to reach culmination. Therefore, I would like to take a moment to thank some of the many individuals making it possible. First, of course, is Martin Scorsese for grasping our vision and responding to the invitation. Incidentally, Many of you may not know that he is one of us having received an honorary degree from Princeton in 1991, and I think this is your first time back. Is that correct? Well, we're very happy to have you here. George Frielinghuysen, uh, an Ivy governor, for suggesting the idea and helping to introduce us to Mr. Scorsese. Helen Morris and Gretchen Campbell, close associates of Mr. Scorsese, for their interest and support. The Ivy Board of Governors, for their backing and encouragement of the series here these many years. The lecture undergraduate committee with four members, Marshall Heyman, Terry Meck, James Stanford, Jonathan Steinberg, thanking them for their legwork and detail management of the event. James Stanford will introduce Mr. Scorsese in a few minutes. I'd also like to thank the Princeton University Security Office, namely Chuck Nouvelle, and the Princeton University Media Services in Don Albury for their vital involvement. Finally, to Sally Wilson in the pink jacket down here, Ivy's coordinator for graduate and undergraduate affairs, without whom none of this would have been possible. Mr. Scorsese will participate in a question and answer period following his presentation. And inside your brochure, you will find a form for submitting questions. I notice that a lot of them have been submitted already and been collected, but if you have more, uh, these gentlemen on the ends will, will collect them for, from you. Uh, we'd also like to ask you to please remain seated following the lecture to allow Mr. Scorsese to exit Makash uh, in advance of the crowd. He will not be signing autographs today, but they can be obtained from his production office in New York, I'm sure. Now I'd like to introduce Douglas Long Glickman, a brother, a younger brother of Priscilla, who will speak for the family. Douglas is a graduate of NYU and went on to get his master's degree at the University of Edinburgh and is currently working on completing a PhD, no less, in contemporary fiction. So I think there's a nice mix between Douglas and uh, 
Mr. Scorsese, perhaps. He's a New York City resident, and I'm happy to introduce him to you now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Neil. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's a complex task of setting the stage for this exciting talk while summing an entire life in a few moments. Priscilla led a vigorous, frenetic life. She had an infectious spirit and genuine thirst for knowledge. She would focus, on the, focus with clarity and determination with each new endeavor, from teaching in the Czech Republic to advocating social issues close to her heart. She had a rare talent to be driven while remaining flexible, open. In this respect, she looked forward to taking tasks, uh, risks, developing into issues she found socially significant and personally engrossing. Here, risk resonates as an apt term for her life. Never rash, always bold, Priscilla discovered her world while surren without surrendering her unique vision. And the more uncertain the prospect, the more uncompromising her conviction. Approach everything, she once advised me in an appropriate sisterly voice, with an open heart. Give it your best go, but in the end, she said, you have to do what's right to you. She understood and followed her own advice. She looked at the face of challenge, weighed the apparent problems, anticipated the hidden pitfalls, and then took the appropriate action. She applied this through thorough assessment at the very facets of her life, personal, educational, advocational, and philosophical. She would approach uncertainty with courage and honesty, never afraid to speak her own voice. This coincides with, or even drives, the aim of the lecture series. She loved debating, talking in turn, taking in turn to adjust for the powerful forces of the public sphere while endorsing individualized methodology and action. So here we gather to discuss, learn, and debate the issues of our day and how the individual perceives and disperses his personal insight while navigating in this dense world. Therefore, I'm happy to turn this over to James Stanford, who has done much to seek out his own path. Graduated in 98 and now working for Ken Lipper Productions, he is a true love of film, knowledge, and Princeton. He's uniquely qualified to introduce us, introduce us today's speaker, Martin Scorsese. Thank you. We are honored to have here with us one of America's greatest living directors, uh, in my opinion, the greatest, Martin Scorsese. The director of over 17 feature films and the American Film Institute's 1997 Life Achievement Award winner, Scorsese has achieved the rarest of positions, the creator who continues to make personal films within the Hollywood system. In a world where demographics, focus groups, and easily definable three-act plots are the standbys of film executives, Scorsese has continued to challenge the medium by placing his magical stamp on every one of his films. Since he began his career, Hollywood studios have been increasingly under the aegis of large corporations intent on getting the highest return for their investment. But time and again, Mr. Scorsese has found a way to make his movies his way. He keeps alive the hope that art and Hollywood can coexist. In his latest work, Kuhn Dune, there is no bankable star, no happy ending, no action-driven plot, and yet he was able to direct through a studio that beautifully told and touching story about the Dalai Lama. To make his movies has always been a struggle. It's a struggle for everyone. But few others from his generations have dedicated themselves to making personal movies to the extent that he has. And none has succeeded in pushing the art form as far or as consistently. 
This achievement often required overcoming the resistance of studios, but despite the obstacles, he was still able to say in 1992, I'm a Hollywood director, and I'm proud to be considered that by the rest of the world. This humility is evident in the style and themes of his work and has contributed to his mastery of the medium. Born in 1942 in Corona, Queens, Mr. Scorsese lived there for seven years until moving to Manhattan's Elizabeth Street in Little Italy, where his parents were born. He grew up interested in painting, fascinated by movies, and planned to join the priesthood. He spent a year at Catholic College, a junior seminary, and through high school planned to follow their religious vocation. In 1960, he became a film student at New York University and began making films. I had a chance to see these films when I took the beginning production class at NYU a couple years ago. The teachers would show us Scorsese's student films with the unspoken challenge, why aren't your films as good as these? <laughs> they remain the standard. After graduating, he returned to teach film at NYU and worked as an editor at CBS. In 1970, he moved to California, joining the filmmakers composing the new Hollywood, including Francis Coppola, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, William Friedkin, and Robert Altman. He edited the documentary Woodstock and directed Boxcar Bertha for Roger Corman. The latter was a great experience for him, but it wasn't until 1973 in Mean Streets that he was able to realize significantly his personal cinematic vision. Despite the limitations of budget, schedule, and location, Mean Streets allowed him to use expressive and experimental camera work which drew praise from critics and colleagues. A dark and tragic film set in Little Italy, Mean Streets is about one man's struggle to reconcile his ambitions, his religious beliefs, and his personal relationships. The movie premiered at the New York Film Festival, and the rest is film history. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, The King of Comedy, After Hours, The Color of Money, The Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Age of Innocence, Casino, Kundu. Each of these movies bears the inimitable Scorsese stamp. He has a strong presence in his films. The camera is often part of the action, moving with or away from the characters, depending on what he wants you to see and what he wants you to feel about what you're seeing. In the fight scenes of Raging Bull, the camera never leaves the ring. In Goodfellas, still frames mark the turning points in the rise and fall of the Irish-Italian gangster Henry Hill. Another hallmark of the Scorsese film is the music, always impeccably chosen to work with the picture. The use of Eric Clapton's Layla in Goodfellas and the Rolling Stones' Jumping Jack Flash in Mean Streets are unshakably collected with the experience of those films. It's the same with Bernard Herrmann's score for Taxi Driver and Philip Glass's score for Kundun. Music heightens the fiction and distills the truth of these movies. It remains with us tied to the images. A third emblem of the Scorsese movie is a thematic strain that runs through his career, the loneliness of the individual living within an oppressive society. Archer Newland discovering that he is the target in the middle of harmless-looking society conspirators in the age of innocence is different from the comedic panic of Paul Hackett in After Hours, which is something else entirely from taxi drivers Travis Pickle deciding to flush the scum out of the city with an arsenal of handguns. But they are all different ways that Scorsese has examined the theme of isolation within society. As the great director Michael Powell said, with mean streets, Scorsese is in direct contact with the audience from beginning to end. This is the rarest gift given to a movie director. Most directors, however wise, however experienced, however resourceful, however bold, don't have it and never will have it. Marty has always had it. He has this great, generous gift of creating a situation for an audience and sharing it with them. He is the ventriloquist and the doll, the singer and the song. His work inspires me more than that of any other artist to find a way to make my own films. I cannot thank him enough for that. It is my great honor and privilege to introduce Martin Scorsese. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I could, uh, seeing as I'm, go I'm going to uh, be looking at my first rough cut in about two days, I could listen to that all day. <laughs> I need a little support. Um, my latest film, that is. Uh, what I hope to do is to maybe show a couple of clips from two films which um, could maybe set up um, uh, some interesting questions. Um, I guess what I should do is introduce each clip. And the first one is from uh, Goodfellas. It was made in 1989-1990, and um, basically this is the um, beginning of the end of the character of Henry Hill. It's his last day as a wise guy, last day as a good fella, in which um, uh, all the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. Um, and from this point on in the film, uh, the exuberance, the lifestyle, and everything uh, quickly changes into uh, uh, harsh realities. But um, uh, maybe we can show that clip now. It's about 10 minutes. Drop off some guns at Jimmy's to match some silencers he had gotten. I had to pick up my brother at the hospital and drive him back to the house for dinner that night. And then I had to pick up some new Pittsburgh stuff for Lois to fly down to some customers I had near Atlanta. Right away I knew he didn't want them. I knew I was going to get stuck for the money. I only bought the damn guns because he wanted them, and now he didn't want them. What the fuck are these things? They're not fit. What's the matter? What do we win on it? Pay for this shit. I'm not paying for it. I didn't say a thing. Jimmy was so pissed off, he didn't even say goodbye. Stop with those fucking drugs. They're making the wine at the mush. You hear me? I knew my Pittsburgh guys always want the guns, and since I was going to see them later in the afternoon to pick up a delivery, I was pretty sure I'd get my money back. Finally got there at the hospital to pick up Michael. His doctor wanted to put me in bed. I told him about the accident and I said I was partying all night. No, I'm fine, Doc. Come on, get over here. Doc, I'm fine. Let me check you out. Come on. He took mercy on me. He gave me 10 milligrams of Valium and sent me home. Now, my plan was to drop off my brother at the house and pick up Karen. Stuff I got to do. It is. 
See, I was cooking dinner that night. I had to start braising the beef, pork butt, and veal shanks for the tomato sauce. It was Michael's favorite. I was making ziti with the meat gravy, and I'm planning to roll some peppers over the flames, and I was going to put on some string beans with some olive oil and garlic, and I had some beautiful cutlets that were cut just right that I was going to fry up before dinner just as an appetizer. Right, so I was home for about an hour. Now, my plan was to start the dinner early so Karen and I could unload the guns that Jimmy didn't want and then get the package for Lois to take to Atlanta for her trip later that Who's night. Who's been their initials in the tomato? You know, I kept looking out the window and I saw that the helicopter was gone. So I asked my brother Michael to watch the sauce and Karen and I started out. get home and get the package ready for Lois to take on her trip. Also, I had to get to Sandy's house to give the package a whack with quinine. Plus, I knew Sandy was going to get on my ass. Then I had the cooking to finish at home, and I had to get Lois ready for her trip. Don't let the sauce stick. Sorry. I, I, you know what to do? 
Yeah. Don't yeah yeah me, Lois. This is important. Now make sure you leave the house when you make the call. You understand me? You hear me? Call from an outside line. I need it. Jesus, you must think I'm dumb. What are you bugging me for? I know what to do. Hey, little hick, just make sure you do it. I need what... So what she do after she hangs up with me? After everything I told her, after all her yeah, yeah, yeah bullshit, she picks up the phone and calls from the house. Now if anybody was listening, they'd know everything. They'd know that a package was leaving from my house and they'd even have the time and the flight number thanks to her. As soon as I got home, I started cooking. Got a few hours until Lois's flight. I told my brother to keep an eye on the stove. All day long, the poor guy's been watching helicopters and tomato sauce. You see, I had to drive over to Sandy's place, mix the stuff once, and then get back to the gravy. taping it to your leg. You gotta go soon. I gotta go home and get my hat. Forget your fucking hat. What, are you kidding me? Just what I need now is a trip to Rockaway because you want to get your hat? I need it. I gotta have it. It's my lucky hat. I never fly without it. Lois, do you understand what we're involved in here? I don't care. I need my hat. I won't fly without it. What could I do? If she insisted, I had to drive her home for her goddamn hat. Put the package in the kitchen, and I went to take her home. Freeze! Freeze! Don't you move, you motherfucker! I'll blow your brains out! Shut the car up, Paulie! For a second, I thought I was dead. But when I heard all the noise, I knew they were cops. Only cops talk that way. Don't fucking move. If they had been wise guys, I wouldn't have heard a thing. I would have been dead. Open a fucking door! Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, um, on the other hand, uh, on a different note, um, I'll show you a clip from Kundun. Uh, again, a, a similar um, climactic sequence, so to speak, in the film. Um, up to this point in the picture, I don't know if uh, people have seen it, but uh, uh, the Dalai Lama has, uh, uh, I think everyone knows the situation with Tibet. Um, and at a certain point, things became uh, very difficult, and uh, he was advised to uh, make an escape. And this uh, is the last uh, 15 minutes or 12 or 15 minutes of the film. Thank you.
With folded hands, I beseech all the Buddhas who wish to pass away to please remain for countless years, not to leave the world in darkness. Set living beings 
Nirvana.
the virtue that has connected through all that I had done. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. With all respect, sir, may I ask, who are you? What you see before you is a man, a simple monk. Are you the Lord Buddha? I think I am a reflection, like the moon on water. When you see me, and I try to be a good man, see yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, shall we begin? Uh, uh, thank you for your patience there, too. Too long clips, I'm afraid. But uh, um, shall we begin with questions? The shot in which the camera pounds out from the Dalai Lama to show a massive pile of bodies, a conscious homage to the scene in the gun, gun in the Wind where Scarlet encounters uh, dying soldiers at the Atlanta train station? Well, um, let me go back. Uh, um, inevitably, any tracking out from a person's face or, or um, full figure to uh, show a field of uh, uh, bodies uh, in recline, so to speak, uh, is automatically going to bring to my mind Gone with the Wind. There's no doubt about it. But um, the uh, that particular image and the image of the blood and the... Um, fish pond, the water becoming blood, were literally uh, the nightmares the Dalai Lama remembered having at the Norbalinka when all this was coming down, so to speak, when everything, when the pressure was getting too bad. Um, he dreamt, he walked out into the uh, Norbalinka yard, and the yard was covered completely with uh, monks who were bleeding and dead. And then he looked at the fish pond, and the fish pond was uh, filled with the blood, and the fish were dying. Um, and he was very fond of these fish. You know, in that sense. But uh, um, I, part of the problem of the picture of making a film like this was to um, make an epic, uh, an interior epic, rather than an epic which you could, I can use the word easy to make. It's not easy. Look at David Lean's films or look at Spielberg. You know, it's not easy. They know what they're doing. You know, putting up masses of people up there on the screen. Uh, uh, equipment, all kinds of extraordinary things, and for example, Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, or in uh, particularly uh, Private Ryan recently, uh, or Lean, uh, Bridge of the River Kwai, and uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. Zhivago. But um, I, I knew that we couldn't do that, and I'm not that kind of filmmaker either. Um, uh, as, much as, as much as I'd like to someday like, do a big battle scene, you know, <laughs> I wonder how I'd do, but how can you do a battle scene after watching Alexander Nevsky? Or Orson Welles' battle sequence in uh, Chimes of Midnight. Um, but in any event, um, that the whole basis of the script of Kundun, um, when I read the script originally, it was given to me by one of my agents at the CAA at the time, and Melissa Matheson's script really dealt with the uh, the boy, the Dalai Lama, and did not it, it kept away from the epic, in a way. Um, 
And it seemed like, um, to me, the trick would be to do an, ep an epic of the inside. And so when we were faced with the fact of, um, of uh, trying to do the uh, takeover of, uh, of Lhasa, uh, the only thing to do was to do the Dalai Lama's dreams, and I felt that they were the most accurate thing. They were in the script originally. So immediately when I decided on the shot, I said, my God, it's gone with the wind. But, <laughs> you know, this was, this was the, um, the idea. This was the idea. I think, I think the images of his, uh, of his nightmare were more uh, 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 powerful. Can you discuss a little bit the parallels between the clips that we just saw, stylistically at least, with voiceovers? And in Goodfellas, there's a sense of definite time, whereas in Kundun, it seems there's a lot of timelessness. And the quick scenic shifts and the use of lighting and the use of colors. And well, I think I was trying to reflect, uh, sorry, I think I was trying to reflect um, the different worlds these people came from. And in Goodfellas, it was definitely a situation where uh, he um, literally uh, couldn't go any further. I wanted to give the impression of what it was like to be under the condition, under uh, conditions of, uh, of, of uh, living that way and living that lifestyle. Um, so that music and uh, voiceover was, um, was very important. Um, in the case of Kundun, once again, it was interior. And I was looking more for the comfort, the comfort and the, the uh, wiping away of pain, the way he speaks at the end, really the comfort. Um, and in fact, the whole film was that process of uh, almost like prayer, making a prayer, in the process of making the film. But very important, and that's why I chose the two clips, because one reflects, for me, something that I uh, have always been involved in, really, which is like, uh, you know, I grew up in the Lower East Side, and uh, even though my family, we, we had many decent people in my family, uh, um, and there were many decent people in the Lower East Side, um, I, I must say, I don't know, we, uh, I was eight years old when I got there. My parents were born there, and we had to move back. Um, for certain reasons, and my father had a fight with the landlord in uh, Corona, and we had to move back. And it was, it was a setback for me, and I had asthma, and they, they would take me to the movies all the time, and, um, uh, because they didn't know what to do with me, basically. Uh, it was 1946, 47, 48, 49, my parents were working class people, they didn't have any uh, books in their houses, um, and the place to bring me to were the movies. And so what I wound up doing was, um, um, spending more comfort, let's say, in the movie theater, but also in the church. I discovered the church um, at, uh, in Elizabeth Street, on Mott Street, St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. And what happened was that I wound up trying to reconcile what I saw on the street, which was, in many, many cases, pretty tough and pretty violent, uh, and a great deal of poverty coming around, uh, living around the Bowery, with all the, uh, the uh, uh, derelicts and uh, men and women who were like on the end, edges of society, uh, gone, the, the dregs of society, all gone. They had given up already, the walking dead. And we lived with them. And in the church, they talked about compassion and love. And I didn't see much of it on the streets. I saw it in my home. I saw it in, in the three-room apartment that my parents were, my, my brother and myself, my parents, and to a certain extent in my father's family and my mother's family. Uh, but um, my, my life, I mean, we were, we literally, I could not, I could not, I just couldn't bring the two together. I didn't know how, what a human being is. What are we? You know, I've seen guys, part of living that way, too, is to desensitize yourself to violence and desensitize yourself to, uh, 
to um, uh, poverty. To the extent where I saw, you know, kids would, in order to live with it, it was too much, kids would uh, beat up these uh, derelicts or uh, uh, take their bottle of liquor away and say it's bad for you and they break it or do worse things. And um, uh, I never knew, I, 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 it was a conflict of emotions and a conflict of uh, trying to find out what the hell we really were doing here. Uh, what's right? How does one live as a human being? Um, my father and his family and my mother and his, her family, uh, they were pretty, pretty straight, decent people, hardworking people. There were a couple of black sheep in the family to a certain extent. Um, and um, Mean Street sort of comes out of that, basically. I had a friend, too. Mean Street is sort of based in semi-autobiographical, myself and a few friends of mine. And um, uh, we, there's no doubt I had a friend who was undersigning loans for a, a kid played by De Niro who was uh, an anarchic. He, he, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't commit to the system, the moral code of that area. And... Um, Underlying, underscoring his loans and underscoring his, his um, signing for his uh, behavior was putting yourself in great jeopardy. I don't necessarily mean being killed, but worse, ostracized. And so um, my father had a younger brother who was that way. And my whole life, uh, and his younger brother lived, we were on the third floor, my, my, my uncle was on the second floor. And I kind of was raised by both of them in a way. And um, uh, one was the darker side and one was the lighter side in a way. And um, my father felt to the end of his life two weeks before he died, was still signing a check for him. And my mother's still saying, don't sign it. Don't do it. <laughs> he don't even want money from you. He always takes advantage of you. And it's my brother. What am I going to Am I my brother's keeper is what it's all about. What's our responsibility as human beings, especially to family? And family in an area where um, that's all there was. There was no police force. There was no government. I mean, some Sicilian Americans took advantage, ultimately, on my generation, took advantage of uh, the benefits of being an American. But you have to understand, my grandparents came here from Sicily, um, from two small villages, uh, two small cities, one Cimina, the other Polizzi Generosa, outside of Palermo. And for, you know, at least a couple of hundred years there, and a thousand some odd years before that, uh, when the Normans invaded Sicily and knocked out the Arabs there, they, uh, it became feudal again when the Normans attacked and took over. And the Sicilian peasant, especially in the 19th century, um, was literally taken advantage of by the church, uh, police, and the government. And there was an automatic distrust of any authority, particularly from Rome, especially when the country was unified, so to speak, 1848, I think, or, you know. And so when they came to America, they were just glad, first of all, to get here and then to get food on the table for the children so that um, uh, education may have been sought after, but they, didn't, they needed money for the household because they had a lot of kids. My mother's side of the family had eight, eight children. My father was about nine, and uh, one of nine. And so they were all living in three and a half rooms plus boarders, and they needed money uh, to put food on the table. So my father wanted to become a CPA, but my uh, grandfather said, you have to go work and dig ditches with him at Con Edison under an Irish boss and because the Irish were just moving out of there and the Italians were coming in. And so um, uh, the family was the unit. The family was the unit. Um, and I, I go this long roundabout way of speaking because um, that's what my, my first formative years were about. And that's where I began to learn what was supposedly wrong and what is right. Um, and I found out that you can learn in the church Christianity, compassion, and love. But you have to see it executed in the streets. And how is that done? And it's, it's Charlie in Mean Streets tries to actually do it, but uh, 
it's a different world. He has to apply it to another moral code, which you could say, okay, is organized crime or et cetera, whatever it is. It's street code. Um, but I saw my father kind of walk that line to a certain extent. Uh, and it has to do with being respected um, for not necessarily behaving like them. And that's very hard. But I mean, it's like, you know, you're not one of the guys. You're not uh, a lower echelon like Henry Hill who uh, beats up people, maybe kills people, et cetera. But you still get the respect. Now, how do you do that? That means it's a series of um, negotiations and what they call sit-downs. If your brother causes trouble, you have to go in and talk about him and get him bailed out. All this went on. It was a constant, a constant uh, um, it was the way of life. It's what I, what was the topic of conversation every night when my father came home from work. And uh, uh, this sense of responsibility and this sense of what you owe to other people around you, particularly family, was really most important. Um, and that's why I chose these two clips, because one reflects the madness of uh, the, the lifestyle, um, particularly a film like Goodfellas, where, uh, uh, quite honestly, as you, when you're young, the lifestyle is pretty uh, exciting, you know, to a lot of young kids who are not necessarily that educated, not interested in education. That lifestyle is pretty exciting at that time, particularly. Now it's somewhat different, but it was the heyday of organized crime, sort of in New York, you know, and in Chicago and America, uh, the 40s, 50s, and the 60s, I think, particularly the 50s. And this thing was exciting. This guy in the beginning of the film says, uh, I, all my life, I, I, I always wanted to be a wise guy. It's better than being president of the United States. That's what he knew. That's where he saw the first signs of respect given to other people. Big guys would get out of Cadillacs with pinky rings, you know, and the Cadillac, the back of the Cadillac would rise up as they got out. You know, and he saw this power, this girth, these guys. Wow, jeez, look at that. You, they could even park and they don't get a ticket. It's amazing. What a great country. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean... So very often you think a lot of these guys, you know, they love America because you can take such great advantage of it. <laughs> so, but um, in the wrong way. Um, but this was, this was my life. This is what I grew up around. But also, you know, I saw the battle, the constant battle for what's right and what's wrong being fought in the kitchen every night at dinner with my father and my mother and family members. What's the right way to behave? What's the wrong way? And often that code didn't necessarily comply with the Christian code, but it had to do with street and it had to do with uh, walking a certain line for respect. Um, uh, you know, I made a number of pictures like, not necessarily like Goodfellas, but other themes of Goodfellas and uh, Raging Bull, for example, Mean Streets and, um, you know, Casino even more so than Goodfellas. But um, uh, Kundun and to a certain extent Last Temptation of Christ, but actually more in Kundun, I found, I found the perfect, I thought, the perfect venue for me to explore uh, the, uh, uh, the comfort we're looking for in life, from the pain of life, um, uh, the kindness, uh, the aesthetics of the Tibetan uh, uh, Buddhism uh, is like the spirituality. So you keep shooting, more and more you keep shooting the ritual and keep shooting the body movements and you keep showing the colors and layer upon layer of texture. The DVD is very nice, but uh, it should be projected in a real theater, <laughs> you know, and the, the sound will be stronger too, but it, the, the actual the image was pretty good. But the detail of what they're doing, the aesthetics become the spirituality in a way, and it's in the doing, it's in the actual performing of the work where you reach the spirituality. Uh, and I even think we made that film with that in mind, the actual work. As, no matter how much I complained about sometimes we were going over schedule because the, the, everything was, you know, in the middle of shooting in the I'm used to shooting in New York, which is probably worse than shooting in desert. Because you can't move the cars, you can't get anywhere. But there you can get other places. But you know, I wasn't brought up in a desert, so I wasn't brought up in la landscape. So you get like, 
you know, you want to take a wide shot, and you say, hey, that hill's great, and you look over the boat, but that hill's good, too. That one's good. Where do you, where do you stop the frame? Damn it, you know, and I gotta, you know, I know in Manhattan I gotta stop the frame there because we're not gonna go down 42nd Street and forget it, you know, that sort of thing. But here, I got, oh, that's great too, you know, and I was at, you know, and then the horses, I wanna get into the thing about the horses. That was like, horses do not, do not hit marks. <laughs> this is the first thing you understand. You make a movie, you kids, you understand. Boats, trains, and horses. Kids too, I'll tell you about the kid, the little boy sleeping. That kid closed the production for two weeks. First two weeks, we got three days of shooting, that was it. The rest was playing with him. <laughs> Come on, look this way, you know, look that way. That sort of thing. But in the process of making the film, we, <laughs> it was, you know, I'd get angry, I'd get, you know, but, but not as angry as I would get, let's say, when I was doing scenes like a Goodfellas or a casino where the madness gets to you. Uh, the anger and the rage builds up that you just can't, you know, uh, you know, every now and then those, those mobile phones go flying. <laughs> You can't, you can't take it because it's just, you have to be part of the, the scene itself. You immerse yourself with the people in that, let's say, Vegas, and you're there at 3 o'clock in the morning and Joe Pesci is attacking one of the, uh, uh, one of the dealers. And, uh, you know, you get into it. I mean, you're part of that whole, and you've got to think that way, and it's part of you just after a while to making 20 years of, uh, of analyzing that life and analyzing living like that, the dead end to a certain extent, a real dead end morally. Um, uh, in many other ways besides morally, a real dead end. You wonder what else there is in life. And, and I was always attracted to the priesthood, and I wanted to be a priest and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, So therefore, I was always sort of wondering if such compassion and love of neighbor can actually be, can actually be lived and, and acted upon in this world that we've created, not just in organized crime. I mean in everywhere, Kosovo and here. You see. Anyway, it's long about ways of going about things, but I get feel better about it. So, <laughs> so there, I said it. Next, could you uh, speak a minute about um, your process of, of adapting a great novel like *The Age of Innocence* and what the responsibilities there are and, and how you approach it? Responsibility is an interesting word. Um, on the one hand, I think there's a responsibility to be true to the novel. Be true to the work of literature. But that doesn't mean that you make it exactly like the book. You know. On the other hand, it's like, uh, yeah, taking doesn't, mean, doesn't have to be exactly like the book and running with it. I understand uh, Leos Carax, uh, a brilliant French director, has just done uh, Pierre or The Ambiguities uh, by Herman Melville, an updated version. I heard it's probably pretty good, and uh, it's pretty wild. Um, he made a film called The Lovers of uh, Pont Neuf, Les Amants de Pont Neuf, and a bunch of films. Hard to be released here these days because you can't see foreign films as, as well as we used to. But um, I think there should be a, a, a responsibility, on because cinema is such a different, movies are such a different medium, there has to be a responsibility to the spirit of the book. Um, in Age of Innocence, I enjoyed reading the book so much that I felt I wanted to be pretty close exactly as much as possible to the book, and including including a um, torrent of narration, just an onslaught of narration, the words, to listen to the words, because I loved reading the words. And as I said, I, it, it's been a hard time in my life to learn to read. I've just learned to read maybe in the past 10, 12 years, uh, because we, I wasn't, we didn't have, we had, my father had the Daily News and the Daily Mirror in the house, that was it. Uh, there were no books. He didn't really read well. We saw movies, so everything was visual literacy rather than, and it took me a very uh, many years, and also in, in uh, high school and college, it was very, very difficult for me to read books. But 
uh, you have to remain true to the spirit. But I like the sound of the words in uh, Age of Innocence, and therefore I wanted the narration pretty top-heavy with narration, so that you get a sense of the attitude of the narrator, of the storyteller, the irony of the storyteller, the way words are put together that reflected the lifestyle of the people we're showing in the film. And the more words you hear put together like that, the more you feel you're with them, you're in them, in a way, you're in that society. And um, uh, uh, we also added a great deal of detail from the book, particularly the what they ate and the amount of ceremony that was involved in the, in the rituals, the tribal rituals of um, this group in New York in the 1870s, particularly the way the dishes were set and the type of... Um, uh, the type of cutlery used, and uh, the way the sherbet was, the way the sorbet was served, uh, the the centerpieces. Uh, in effect, ultimately, by the end of the movie, these are all the things that are one more little uh, brick in the walls that have built Archer Newland inside this prison, which he can't escape. And that's why I, I, I played with so much detail in the film. Um, we try to remain as true to the book as possible, because quite honestly, I like the book. Why change the ending? You know, keep the ending the same way. Uh, that cost us some money in the box office, but what the hell do we want to change the ending for? Has it come to this point, like uh, in, the, in the, uh, the golden age of Hollywood, very often the books, you did change the endings. But here I thought we can actually get away with it after coming out of the 70s. We can actually t say, you know, this is the way the book ends. The man did not go upstairs. He left. <laughs> he said, tell her I'm old-fashioned. You know, I may not agree with him. You know, we wish, a lot of people wishing. My cameraman, Michael Ballhouse, the day we were shooting it in Paris, he said, oh, I wish he goes upstairs. I said, shut up. <laughs> I'm not going upstairs. But he's very funny, Michael, that way. He was teasing me. Uh, he, he did 15 films of Fassbender, so he's not a, he's not a conventional guy. You know? And he was out there. He, uh, but um, Age of Innocence, uh, top heavy with, with narration. I love narration in films going way back. Oh, um, I love being told a story that way when I was a child. Uh, even, oh, Albert Lewin, this producer-director who did uh, a series of wonderful films based on literature in, in Hollywood, The Picture of Dorian Gray and uh, uh, The Private Affairs of Bellamy and uh, The Moon and Sixpence. Those, those three films are interesting. Uh, a lot of narration, particularly Dorian Gray, with, with the, the wonderful voice of Cedric Hardwick, uh, using the, the, this language was so beautiful in the film. Um, and I always remember that. And, of course, I was very uh, uh, inspired by uh, narration, um, in the French New Wave films, the ones that were made in 1958, 59, and up to about 63 or 64 by Truffaut and Godard, although I had no idea what they were talking about. I, I never read those books. I, I, they came from a literature. They came from based, something based on literature, you see. And when, when uh, Jules et Jim, uh, they're holding up a copy of Goethe's Elective Affinities, I said, what the hell is that? What kind of a title is that? I have no idea. I knew of Goethe. I read Faust. But I had no idea about uh, young Werther, and I had no idea of uh, um, uh, particularly um, elective affinities. And so I missed lots of uh, references, and I missed the basis of those pictures, what, what, they were, what the foundation was really based on, which was literature, I think. Excuse me, I had a great appreciation of Hollywood cinema. But um, uh, I found, too, at that time that, in a way, coming out of the, the new wave of the French and the Italians, and somewhat to a certain extent the English and Japanese, too, but the French and the Italians, uh, that in a way in the late mid-60s, early 60s, sorry, by the early 70s when we were able to make films in Hollywood, we came out of that tradition and we were in a way wanting to use films as novels. Not necessarily beginning, middle, and end, a straight story, not linear, um, mainly character studies where we can go off on tangents and come back, 
you know. And in Goodfellas, you get a sense of that, too. The tangent is there. He's constantly going off on a tangent. It has to be, he's got to work out the cutlets have got to be right, and the, uh, uh, the helicopter's chasing him, and the brother is there, needs this, and that. So that uh, the tangents for me work very well there in uh, Goodfellas, because while he's rattling on, you begin to realize that the drugs and his lifestyle have put him into such a state where everything is of equal importance. I mean, the helicopter's going to arrest him. What is he doing? He's got guns in his car. He's got this. It's impossible. He's lost all control of his life. Um, but uh, we really, I really was opened up. My mind was opened up by the, uh, the new wave pictures coming out of Italy and France, particularly the, uh, the French. In fact, Jules and Jim, the first three minutes, if you're familiar with the film, has a heavy narration, and each, each shot lasts more than a second or two. And each shot was of Jules and Jim in, and other people in different locations with different costumes, and why I emphasize that because when you go to when you say well, that shot's only going to be on the screen for one minute and uh, less than uh, 30 seconds, um, you say yeah, but in this one he's at a cafe and they have one costume on. In this one they're at a theater, and this one they change their costumes again. And this one yeah, because that means you've got to go to the place, you've got to set up your camera, and it takes a lot of time. You've got to change costumes. That's time-consuming. You're lucky in a big production with a big with a big um, a big um, crew. Uh, to maybe get two or three of those a day. But I, I know that they move faster. But the idea was to, a, 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 a kind of waterfall of images and uh, voiceover. And I planned the whole speed and movement of Goodfellas uh, based on those first three minutes of Jules and Jim, unrelenting till the end of the sequence you saw. Then after that, there's the aftermath and everything is quieted down. But um, uh, in Age of Innocence, we really, I wanted to give the experience to a certain extent of what I had when I read the book. While we're on the Age of Innocence, could you comment on the similarities between the worlds depicted in Raging Bull and Casino and Goodfellas and the Age of Innocence? The similarity in the world of uh, Raging Bull and Goodfellas and Age of Innocence? Yeah. Um, I can only, on, on, the, on one level, really, and it has to do with, uh, again, tribal behavior. It has to do, again, with, um, with um, people who won't conform to the, to the, to the group. In, in uh, Raging Bull, he just will not play ball with the guys who, who control organized, organized, um, the organized crime figures who control boxing. He won't play ball with them at all. And when he finally does to get a shot at the title, he has to throw a fight. And he disgusts himself so much that he's the only recorded man ever in history to admit to the authorities that he threw a fight. He's the only one. And they said to him, it was in the film originally, but we took it out in the, the script. They, they said to him, aren't you afraid of any retaliation? He looked at the camera and said, I'm afraid of those bums. I mean, he was really a tough-headed individual, um, but in order to uh, get what he wanted out of society, that group, that organized crime, he had to play ball with them at some point in his life, which almost destroyed him, in a sense destroyed him, in a way. He came out the other end. He's still alive, and he's, he's a much happier man, but, but uh, that comes with age, too. And um, in uh, Goodfellas, um, the ostracizing has to do with, uh, ultimately, his betrayal of his quote friends unquote I mean his uncle Jimmy played by Bob De Niro uncle Jimmy if you look at the photographs midway through the film there's always we took snapshots of them like in Hawaii and places like that all together and I, I at birthday parties and if you look at them if you go back and you have a DVD or a laser disc of tape go back and look in the middle of the film at those photographs everybody in the frame with uh, uncle Jimmy there played by Bob uh, was either killed or put away by Jim by him later in the film you know, you look at a photograph and say, oh, gee, Uncle Jimmy, they've killed all these people. <laughs> wow. And he's going to kill me. And I'm not a made guy. I don't have to play by the rules. I'll, t I'll rat on him. Save my life. Oh. 
I mean, that's the case. I'm not saying that, that I don't want to take, I don't take a, stand, a stand on any of that. I talk about that's the decision he made, which began, he, he followed in the, tr in the tradition, of course, of the, um, uh, the breaking of that code, the omerta of the Sicilian mafia, which was uh, by Joe Valacci in, in the 60s, I believe, in the early 60s, who um, started talking. Uh, he, followed that, he followed that tradition. Although Valacci and these other men who spoke later on were on a very higher, much higher level. And was interesting about Henry Hill that he was a soldier, a foot soldier, and he was on a day-to-day -day level. He was open to so many different levels of that, that crime world. He had access to so many people. And that's why his testimony was important for the FBI strike task force, whatever that's called, the guys who put them in. Um, I, I think um, in Age of Innocence, when he goes against the organized society that he's in, they kill him. There's no doubt that they kill him. They kill his spirit. They kill his spirit. And um, he then conforms. That's not to say that he didn't ultimately uh, appreciate uh, his wife and the children and the life he led. That's why he can't go upstairs at the end. He was just forced to take another course. And everybody always conjectured, what would he, what would he have been like in Paris with Ellen? <laughs> I don't know if he could have taken it. He was just too, bred, too much bred the other way. You know, uh, and he made peace with his life in that way, and did the best he could. He's a stand-up man, as they say. He did the best he could by his wife, and with his children. And his wife and, and, and he, they never they never discussed it. And he, his son tells him at the end of the film that uh, when she was dying, she called the son in and said, "I know you'll, you'll be good. Your father will be will take care of you because once when he wanted something the most, he gave it up for you." And it was Ellen, but she never spoke to him about it. It wasn't uh, form, I guess it wasn't proper form. But uh, no, they, they killed him. They killed a part of him in a way. Um, about your collaborations with Paul Schrader, um, co-writer of Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation, Now Bringing Out the Dead. What is your relationship with, like, like with him now as opposed to the early years or what was it like in the oh, early well, years? Um, 20, 20 some odd years ago, we were a, a part of this group in Los Angeles. Um, Brian De Palma and a um, film critic at the time, Jay Cox, who no, was no longer a film critic in the early 70s, but in the late 60s he was, of Time Magazine, introduced me to all these people, everybody I knew in the business. And um, Brian introduced me to Paul Schrader. And we started hanging around with uh, Paul and Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. Francis Coppola was sort of like the Godfather, so to speak. He had made the Godfather film and was about to make Godfather too. And we would go up to San Francisco and spend some time with him. And he was very much the mogul. It was a different thing. We were down in L.A. and it was very, we were, John Milius also was involved. And uh, I know I'm forgetting somebody else. Um, uh, Freakin and Bogdanovich were on a, they were a different generation, though. They were slightly, uh, they were in a different world in a way. But we were these young Turks who were about to take everything over by storm and, um, and get everybody crazy. Um, and Paul had this wonderful script, Taxi Driver. He had just sold a script called the Yakuza, based on uh, the Yakuza films of Japan, um, to Warner Brothers for an extraordinary fee at the time. And he, uh, they were going to get a director to do that. Eventually, it was Sidney Pollack who did it. But um, Paul then wanted to write and direct on his own. He had, an, he had already an, an, under his arm Taxi Driver, and Brian De Palma gave him that script. And uh, he said, this is something you should be doing. He says, I don't want to do it. I have my own things to do. You do this if you can. And so... Uh, I read the script. I said, I really like this a lot. I felt very much, um, we were, you know, we were young. I was 29, I think. 
I did the film ultimately when I was 32 years old, um, but 32 going on 15, uh, or maybe 11. And uh, the anger and the rage was certainly there. There's no doubt about it. And Travis expressed that, maybe the wrong way, but uh, that character, we understood it. And then I showed it to De Niro. I made Mean Streets then and showed Mean Streets to, uh, to Francis Coppola, the answer print, brought up to San Francisco, showed it to him. He put Bob De Niro in Godfather II. Uh, we try to raise money for a uh, taxi driver. It's very difficult because it's too controversial for whatever reason at the time. We couldn't raise the money. We, th we were thinking of making a black and white video and then transferring it to film. We just couldn't get the money. Um, then at the Academy Awards, I was there um, for my movie Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and, and Ellen Burstyn won the Academy that night, the best actor, best actress. And I, uh, the first award of the evening went to De Niro for Godfather II. So Francis came back as he came up the aisle with the Oscar. Bob wasn't there. He was shooting Novacento in, uh, he was shooting something with Bertolucci, Novacento in Italy. And Francis hit me on the shoulder and said, it's good for your film, which is true because then the combination of De Niro and myself, which people liked in Mean Streets, the studios liked it anyway, and some of the critics, and um, put the two of us together with a good price, a million three at the time, and we could shoot the film. And Schrader and I were all pretty much very close at the time. Uh, I found myself closer to De Niro and Keitel and uh, Brian De Palma, actually. Uh, Steven Spielberg was from a different uh, way of thinking. Was, he, was, he started in television. Many, the kid directed Joan Crawford at the age of 24 or something. And every time, every time he was laying out a shot, this was a television show based on Night Gallery, you know, every time he was laying out a shot, she'd be on the phone trying to get him fired. <laughs> and John Cassavetti says, in order to direct pictures, you, got, you can't be afraid of anything. I would have been afraid of Joan Crawford. <laughs> Steve didn't give a damn. Hey, you know, bang, he was moving, he pretended she wasn't on the phone, just kept walking, you know. Before you know it, five or six days shooting, had it in the can. It's a great picture. I mean, for, for the, you know, television was a TV film. But, you know, that's, that's the kind of guy he was. And I didn't know how to, see, for me, looking at um, movie stars like Joan Crawford or when I worked with Paul Newman in Color of Money, it took me a few months to get used to talking to Paul Newman because I saw him on the screen when he, I was 12 years old. And their, their, their images were projected on a very, very big screen. They were bigger than life for me. And movies represented an escape at some other place that I, I uh, uh, different from my world where I grew up. And so they were like gods in a way, gods and goddesses. And uh, Steve came up from a different situation, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and that. So, so he was more, he was into it and he understood uh, that whole aspect of it. But I didn't. I had to sort of make my own group of actors to, to find myself uh, working with people in a, in a very easy way. Not easy, but I mean uh, more comfortable way. And anyway, um, Schrader uh, and I stayed friends over the years. Um, he uh, started directing. Um, we had a writer, a close friend of ours named Mardik Martin, who helped me with um, Mean Streets. We came from NYU together, and he started to write Raging Bull for us, but we didn't, Bob De Niro and I were doing New York, New York, and we didn't really supervise him. And so we never really applied ourselves to the working of the script, and at a certain point, the script got out of hand. And so I asked, I, I talked to Bob, and I think the only way to get it in line is to utilize if Paul Schrader would do us the favor, by that point he was directing his own films, didn't want to do this. If he would come in and do us the favor of do a, a rewrite on, on Raging Bull, that would give us some focus because we were stuck in a linear story. We didn't want to be. We were stuck in the beginning. Jake did this, and then at the end he did this. And I said, it's just not interesting. And um, uh, Paul agreed to do it. We had to really... We had to really uh, beg him in a way because he was doing his own pictures and uh, he said, I'm doing it. I'll do it in six weeks and that'll be it. I said, okay. He, uh, six weeks later, gave us a script which started in the middle of the story and showed the conflict. He's in a fight. He clearly wins the fight, but they, the decision is against him because he's not on the right side of the wise guys. 
and he can't get a shot at the title belt. And then all these other scenes, and everything worked out very nicely, and we asked him for a rewrite, and he gave us just a little bit because he was going off in his own work, and ultimately he said, you guys, you know, if you want to go any further, you guys do it yourself. And so we did. And uh, after that, I worked with Paul in Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, but again, uh, again, I asked for Paul because he had a clarity and a vision. It was like a laser beam. He can go through a 600-page book like that and just pull out what he thought was important. Me, well, you see the final version. See, Paul's original script was 90 pages on Last Temptation of Christ. The rewrite I did for myself and Paul and Jay, Jay Cox would help a little bit was about 130 pages. And it's a two-hour and 46-minute film. It's got, you know, it's... it's uh, it aspires to more than, than I was able to handle at the time. But he goes leaner. He, uh, and this is, comes, and Paul's very important, very important because the, the combination of Paul and myself was very interesting in Taxi Driver. Paul was a Calvinist, and I'm Roman Catholic. Paul never saw a film until he was 18 years old. So he comes to cinema with all his faculties. He can come in and look at A Man Escape by Robert Bresson and understand it. Because he goes as, a, as an adult, as a person who's read books, as a person who has, has been a been, uh, uh, certain education, and already with a philosophy, a very strong philosophy in life and, uh, uh, and religion. Uh, I was introduced to films um, at the age of two, three, four years old, and they were entertainment to me, genre, uh, musicals, westerns, gangster films, that sort of thing. So um, I want to do it all. And I, wanted, I have a tendency to, to, uh, to uh, become very... Um, uh, what's the word when you it just goes like in Goodfellas where it's way too long for its own good but it has to be uh, Casino is even longer and crazier but it has to be uh, the, the tendency like uh, Bernardo Bertolucci the night he saw Casino he said that's he looked at me he said oh, uh, the danger of, uh, of uh, a pack of wild horses always threatening to get away from you I said exactly but you always pull them back somehow I think I think we got some of it but Schrader always goes in like a bang 90 pages he said up to 60 60 pages, one hour into the film, Christ is crucified. And people know the story. say, well, how long could the film just started? How could he be crucified in the middle? So then you have The Last Temptation, which should do the last 30 minutes. But I added stuff from the book. And I, uh, uh, I went back to the book, and I added arguments about, uh, uh, that were from the book, actually quite interesting, about Jesus uh, confessing to a certain extent to a monk, um, confessing how he felt about being a human being and uh, seeing a woman and wanting her, uh, but not having the guts to take her, see, and uh, this, this incredible sense of sin and guilt. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, that was more Catholic, I thought, in that way. Uh, and so Paul uh, uh, disowned that. He's not interested. He just gave me, gave me what I needed in that 90 pages, and that was it. And we tried since then. It was 1982, 83 he wrote that script, and I, I directed it in 87. So uh, around 1990, we tried to get together again to work on a project, but it didn't, it didn't pan out. And then when I read this, this book, uh, Bringing Out the Dead, um, Scott Rudin, producer at Paramount, um, gave me these galleys of, of this book. And uh, I always read what he gives me because um, years ago he gave me Silence of the Lambs. And I read it and I couldn't see myself doing it. Um, because people say, well, Marty, it's violent. Do you understand? It's not that I understand violence. It's a certain kind of violence. I mean, <laughs> I could see myself in the morning going to say, okay, now we'll do the autopsy scene. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to look at it. I don't know. Jonathan Demme is more of a humanist. He's more. He's got this whole thing going. It's great. He works in the character and he put it in perspective. The violence. Is, I don't understand the serial killer thing. I'm fascinated by it because again, it deals with what is really a human being. You know, uh, 
what, what, where, where's the negative and the positive in us? Uh, what, what is really the, the um, what are we really made of? What are we? But um, so I always remember that, and I said, yeah, well, even if I had made it, it still wouldn't have been a picture that uh, would have had a, uh, uh, a wider audience than I normally would have, uh, because I, I would have tended to do the violence in a very graphic way, because I don't know any other way, and I don't think I would have enjoyed it in that sense. So because the violence in Mean Streets and in Raging Bull and in, fact, in the Casino and in uh, uh, Goodfellas is based on a code. People do something wrong, something happens. People say something wrong, something happens. Maybe not total violence, but they're put back in their place in a certain way, like the battle, the fight scenes in Raging Bull in the Copacabana, because his brother, uh, played by Joe Pesci, sees his sister-in-law out with his close friend, and that's disrespectful to his brother. And it's, it's, it becomes it's a whole way of living and a code of law. Um, but um, uh, we wound up doing, uh, so I wound up reading this, this, uh, The Galleys of Bringing Out the Dead, which is a story of a paramedic, a book by Joe Connolly. He was actually a paramedic for about five or six years in St. Clair's Hospital in New York, which is a tough area at that time, particularly Hell's Kitchen. And he worked at night only. And um, the book is basically about a guy who, um, on a long weekend, a Labor Day weekend, uh, he's having a very hard time. He's having sort of a breakdown, a spiritual crisis, because it's been about six months and he hasn't brought anybody back to life. And everybody's dying on him. And then he'll go and he'll save a low-life, real tough drug dealer. At the last minute, he gets there and he saves the guy. And the next minute, on the corner, 12-year-old drug addict, poor kid, she dies. What's it all about? Do I make a difference? Is there anything? Is there any system? Is there a God? What am I doing here? You know, and then he takes on the guilt of losing these people until he realizes at some point that he's there to be a witness. He said, um, he's there to accept and deal with it. And um, he's not God. You see. And so I thought the themes were really great. And I said, I told Scott, I said, I, I'm, I'm tied up with a bunch of pictures. I have a deal over at a different studio than you. How can we make this picture? I said, but I'm interested in make, pulling a script together. And I said, but the only guy who can write something like this is Paul Schrader. And Schrader wrote it within three weeks or four weeks. Uh, he was very happy to get back together and uh, work on it. I don't really do very much with him. Uh, he usually goes right in and he does uh, uh, either either I rewrite it my own way, in the case of Last Temptation and uh, Raging Ball to a certain extent, uh, or in the case of Taxi Driver or this film. It's basically what Schrader wrote, Bringing Out the Dead. Um, and we hope in the future to work together again. But i just seen the theme is right, and the themes also dealt with um, stuff that we had um, been dealing with back uh, 20 years ago in Taxi Driver, only we're mellower now. Uh, we're in our 50s, I'm 56, he's 55 or something, and we, you know, it's a guy in Manhattan at night in a, uh, in a, in a van, a bus, and uh, only this time instead of the killing people, he's saving them, and uh, trying to save them, but the anger and the rage is still very real, and it's there, you know. There's been considerable discussion recently about the movie industry's possible influence in exacerbating violence in our society. What are you, your views on the role of the filmmaker and the responsibility of the filmmaker and in terms of violence and whether or not violence in film correlates with society? Well, I think there's two kinds of violence in films. Um, there's a kind of um, entertainment violence, which uh, is becomes like, oh, like in a John Woo film, you know, like uh, Face Off 
or uh, his, his Chinese films uh, that he made, The Killer and pictures like that, where it becomes ballet and it becomes about, um, it's totally unrealistic. It becomes cinema. Um, you don't feel anything for the people who are being killed. You don't even know who they are. They become forms. And it's a matter of um, the art of making movies, I guess. And then the, the violence I've always been uh, uh, pinned against the wall about by a number of people have been the violence that has really the violence in my films. I just shoot it the way I see it. Uh, and I'm not talking about the, the, the boxing scenes in Raging Bull. The, they became, they were about uh, what it would be like in, to be in a ring and be pummeled constantly and what your vision would be like and what, the, what your oral, um, oral uh, experiences would be, what you'd hear, what you'd see. So that's why we stayed in the ring all the time. And it became more about choreography than about violence. But uh, the violence I do, I mean, the tendency for me is to shoot it the way I see it and the way I've seen certain violence uh, growing up, which is very realistic. And um, uh, I try to be as true as possible to the characters and the situation, uh, even the killings in uh, Casino, ultimately, at the end of the film, where we got lots of uh, uh, literally... Uh, incredible amount of detail from uh, the police who were on the scene at the time and also some of the wise guys who were on the scene who are now in jail or or, uh, or uh, part of a uh, witness protection program. Uh, how to kill a person in a situation like that, how to do this and that. Sort of. So I wanted to be as real as possible. Um, I guess what we always felt about our responsibility as filmmakers was to be as truthful as possible to the, to the story, to the people in the story and to the world that we're depicting. That was the key thing. We know that it won't be accepted by a, a, a wide audience. We knew that to a certain extent. For example, I didn't think Taxi Driver was going to be a hit in any way. It was a labor of love, but it turned out to be uh, uh, a very successful film uh, financially. But uh, I had no idea when it opened. I was surprised to see the lines. I had no idea. And um, uh, one has to understand, too, it's Paul Schrader's Taxi Driver. It was the feeling that he had at that time. He's broken up with his second girlfriend. I think he was alone for several weeks, hadn't seen anybody, and uh, he wrote that script. That's the way he felt. And it's genuine and it's real. It's true. And it's part of what is a human being. And he used the taxi. I, didn't, I, didn't think, I don't even know metaphors. I, don't, I didn't use it, anything as a metaphor. But he, he it just read, the DVD is out. The new DVD will be coming out. And we did this the documentary in which he said this. He said, the cab, he didn't tell me this. I guess he told me this when making the film, but I didn't pay any attention to it. <laughs> he, said, he said, the cab is a metaphor for loneliness. And one night, Bob De Niro went out driving as a cabbie, and I went with him. And you get that sense. You know, people get in the cab, and they tell you they control your life for the next 40 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Anything could happen. You know, and you can make no contact with these people. It's very, even if you're talking to them. Uh, as Travis, as Bob was in character driving, so he didn't want to talk to anybody. And he just went up and down Manhattan, you know. But... Uh, no, it was a matter really of being true to the world of the people that we're depicting. And that's where we felt the responsibility, knowing full well, again, as I say, it wouldn't be gone over to a big audience. For example, when Taxi Driver was first shown on television, the, it, you know, it was excerpts from, it was like 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, fine. I said, no. I mean, this is not a movie made for television. I mean, it's not made for um, people to turn on at 8 o'clock at night with the kids in front of the TV set and to watch it. You know, if it's going to go syndicated, cut the damn thing. I don't care. I really don't. But don't cut it on cable if you pay for it and you want to see a film. Don't cut it on a laser disc and don't come time compress it. And don't cut it on video, etc. Because that's a choice, an adult choice of making, uh, making a decision to look at a film like that. And that's the audience I was making those films for. Um, 
again, with the, the extraordinary amount of um, action films and fantasy films and um, uh, what they call popcorn movies, where the violence is so um, becomes part of uh, the design of the picture, um, there is a desensitizing, I think, to uh, fake violence in a way. And it may be, it may be, it may be a dangerous thing, ultimately. You know, I think there's certain. That's why I sort of make violence scenes in my picture very real, so people don't want to look at them, because that's the reality as much as possible. Like in the Thin Red Line, or in uh, in uh, Private Ryan, the, the the beach sequence at the beginning, or when the wall falls down and the German soldiers are behind the, the wall and they're all point, pointing guns and all yelling at each other. Who's going to fire first? That's absolutely terrifying. You know, it's not fun being in a war. You know, you have to know what you're going to get into. You know. Uh, Thin Red Line had the most uh, extraordinary battle sequences in violence, particularly the aftermath of the Japanese soldiers. That's a remarkable film, you know, and it wasn't uh, exhilarating. Uh, you once said in an interview that of all the characters in your films, the one with whom you most related was Robert Pupkin of The King of Comedy. Oh, that was long ago. Long ago? Uh, <laughs> I got past him. Okay. No, he... Um, the Pupkin thing, uh, I, uh, it was a De Niro project, and he wanted me to do it back around after I did Mean Streets. And I read the script, and I didn't think it was any... Um, I really thought that um, it seemed to be like a one-line gag. To get on television, he uh, kidnaps uh, the talk show host and gets on TV. And I lost, I lost the meat. What was happening was that De Niro was already into that world, and I wasn't. I was a director, and... A lot of my actors would get the attention, but very often I didn't get very much attention. But the actors up, up front, they would get a lot of attention. And so he was already in that world of being besieged by Rupert Pupkins. And he wanted to know what made them think and what did they expect us to do? You know, in a sense, uh, touch the hem of my garment and I will heal you and, and that sort of thing. What, what is it about? What is celebrity? And I, wasn't, I didn't understand it until after doing Raging Bull. I took another eight years or so, another six years or so working, and I, I became... I became involved with that sort of thing where we, you know, an old friend would want to get together and it would always be, absolutely, we're going to get together, talk about the old times and get together. And at the end of the conversation, after three hours, a nice night, they say, listen, I have an idea for a script. And some cases, some old friends, it's okay. Other, others, you know, it's just not going to go anywhere. And it's a lot of energy and they want favors and it gets to the point where it's, it's uh, um, you have to be alone. And that's it. And um, Bob knew that already at that time. And I didn't, so we kind of grew into it. And that's why... Um, I agreed to make the picture. But I felt I understood sort of at that point that I understood Pupkin um, and his fascination, as I said to you earlier, about the movie stars and television personalities when I was growing up, of a sense of gods and goddesses. And that's what I'm placing them on a pedestal in a way, um, the fascination with them, and also the Jerry Lewis character where he had to sort of wind up being alone most of the time. And that's why I, I said that at 1983, I think. It's a long time ago. Okay. In what ways do you find yourself connected to Bertolucci, perhaps in terms of The Last Emperor and Kundun or the very realistic violence in Novacento, and also the Italian cinematic tradition in general? Well, I, I, um, the Italian cinematic tradition is, is the key one for me because as much as the films that I saw were um, Hollywood films, uh, the, I was exposed at the age of five years old to other kinds of films, and they were shown on television in New York on an Italian station on a, on a station that showed Italian films once a week on a Friday night, and they showed neorealist films. I was five years old. One was Open City by Rossellini. The other was Paisan by Rossellini. And the other, of course, was Bicycle Thief or Thieves by uh, De Sica and a few others by Zavattini and, and, uh, and a few other people. 
Um, and my grandparents would come over to watch that. And um, I became aware that they were the same people. And when they were watching Paisan, especially in the Sicilian episode in the beginning, or even in the Naples episode with the boy and the, and the shoes, um, I would see them crying. And uh, they were very moved. This is something that they had just missed, in a way, by moving out of Sicily as fast as possible. And uh, they saw their people being uh, oppressed and, and, and uh, going through hell and suffering a great deal. Um, and I began to realize that what they were speaking on television was what we, they spoke at home. And I began to understand that, that I come from a different place. It's not just America. You know? And there was this other part of me, and it was reflected in these films. And I also began to understand that um, the movies I like, yes, uh, The Three Musketeers with Gene Kelly and uh, Northwest Passage and you know, wonderful stuff, Singing in the Rain and pictures like that, and even Sunset Boulevard and, uh, and um, uh, Ace in the Hole and, and uh, Place in the Sun and The Bad and the Beautiful, um, films that I loved, especially in the early 50s. Uh, these films uh, were one kind of filmmaking, but there was another thing happening somewhere else in the strange country that was so real. And real is a bad word. I've used it many times today, but it was so truthful and so honest and dealt with a different, a different way of making films entirely. Um, and that was a part of me. And I think that in a way, that coupled with the French and the Italian new wave of the late 50s and the early 60s um, and the tendency for the young people uh, that were being formed in the 60s and who became the uh, directors of the 70s uh, to go towards a European cinema, um, I became more, I think, in a way, more of a European director because of that experience. Uh, with the Italian film. And um, Bertolucci was a key figure for me also. Um, I saw his uh, film Before the Revolution at the New York Film Festival at a press screening. And I was just out of NYU at the time, and I wanted to make my first feature. And I couldn't wait to make a film like that. I thought that was fantastic. It had such joy of filmmaking in it. Uh, I didn't know what it was about. I, again, let me emphasize, I was never really, really interested in the political nature of things. Um, I grew up with a background that was distrustful of the politicians and uh, police force and uh, authority. And so um, I never really understood a great deal about politics until I went to New York University a little bit, and that was my first time really being outside in the world. But even then, I wasn't quite sure what was happening. Um, and, I, uh, and I missed all the political aspects of uh, what Bertolucci was dealing with them before the revolution. And I missed also the fact of his background. His father was a poet. He had already, at the age of 19 or something, uh, published a book of poetry. Um, his mentor was the great Pasolini. You know, this is something else entirely. And I wanted to be there immediately, but I had to, like, wait. I had to grow into what he already was, you see, um, in a different way. Not uh, poetry and not politics, but in a different way, my own way, to find my own voice. But he gave me, watching that film, and I went, I went every theater it was playing in. I, I watched for another 10 years. I watched it many, many In fact, I watched it on a, on a satellite dish. Um, in Morocco, in Wazazat, on a Saturday night while I was shooting Kundun. It was on some Spanish station where the titles were on it, and it was fantastic, you know. And I just loved seeing that film. And he opened up that whole world to me. And um, therefore, there's that connection. As far as The Last Emperor is concerned, uh, it's just the usual story. We know that Kundun would be, you know, a little boy, maroon, gold, Last Emperor. <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> I mean, that's about... that's. That's where the, you know, that's where the comparison ends, I think. You know, it's, it's a little different. You know, I wish I could make, I mean, the Storaro and, and Bertolucci. I mean, it's just exquisite opera. And uh, I, I tell you, the only two guys in films, I, I mean, I can't talk about my friends. Because when I see a friend's film, like a Spielberg and De Palma, 
and Lucas and, and all, all of them. Uh, I'm usually, uh, it's altered a different way, and there's a different way of talking about it to them than as a film lover and a film critic or a film goer. And, uh, but Bertolucci, I, don't know that, I didn't know that well, so I could say, I can say I like watching his films over and, again, over and over again, and I like watching Kubrick. And what I mean by that, these are the only two modern, modern for me, modern filmmakers already there. They're very Kubrick's now, unfortunately, gone. But um, uh, I enjoy watching their films very much the way I like to watch uh, Hitchcock films with the sound turned off on TV or uh, Powell Pressburger uh, and a bunch of others, too, that, um, that I watch as it's not like, oh, you're looking at that film again. It's like you live by that film. It's like putting on a, a recording of... Um, a symphony you like, or, or, or uh, chamber music that you like. Uh, it's it's not how many times you see a film; it's what it, how you live with it, to a certain extent. And I don't mean a film; I mean these people who are making these films. You see, so Bertolucci is that way for me, and uh, uh, and uh, Kubrick. There's no doubt. And the other major change in my life was I couldn't bring the two together: the European cinema in my mind and Hollywood cinema until I was 11 or 12 years old. And I walked into the Lois Commodore Theater on 2nd Avenue and 6th Street and paid 75 cents or 50 cents for children and went in and saw On the Waterfront. And then everything changed because I saw people up there that were like people I knew in the street, my uncle, my cousins. Okay, there were Irish in the film. It didn't matter. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter. All the same thing. You know? It didn't matter that the ending was a conventional sort of Hollywood ending, that the guy who spoke against the gangsters lived. Because even my parish priest at the time, Father Principe, we he loved the film, and we were talking about it. And we went by a bookstore one day, and there was Bud Schulberg's book in the uh, window on Waterfront. And we talked about the film, oh, how wonderful, great. He said, of course, the priest said, of course, you know what would happen to Terry Malloy. He'd be floating in the river. He said, but that's okay. It's still, you know, it's, we, we still accepted Hollywood convention. Then in my mind, it was like um, Kazan's pictures were then the films, that and East of Eden, the same year or the year after. Those were the two that changed my life in a way um, that I realized that this was a person that was speaking to me and I was speaking to them in a way. And um, there was a voice I saw that was different and that was sort of in between European and American cinema in a way. Uh, so from the ages of 11 or 12 to the age of 22 when I finally saw America, America, which really put it at home to me because he, his immigrant story is the story of all the immigrants here. Watch that film again. Um, it also made me think that I made the journey the way uh, the character played by Statis Yalalis in that film, America, America, made the journey from, uh, from uh, Greece and Turkey uh, to America. I made the journey from this little Sicilian village to, um, I guess, a place like, I can say Hollywood or whatever, but I'm, I live in New York. Uh, but I made the journey to this a different world completely. And so those pictures were very, very much changed my way of thinking about movies. Up to that point, my favorite film stars were people, of course, like Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda and people like that, but my favorite film stars were B-movie actors like Victor Mature and John Payne and Dennis O'Keefe and uh, Barbara Britton. I like them all. And uh, But when I saw uh, Brando and Lee J. Cobb and uh, Rod Steiger and even two-ton Tony Galinto, who was in the background, all he said was definitely. <laughs> he used to be, his face was like shovel-hitted. He was in so many fights, Tony Galento, his face is just flat. And he's always in the background, like, definitely. And even his definitely is not very good, but he, how, it's a miracle he gets a word out. You know, yeah, wow, he spoke, you know. And uh, this guy, you know, a lot of damage. And I, th these people, 
when I saw them, they, they were like behaving. They weren't acting. They were it. They were, they were actually the people. And um, same thing with James Dean in uh, East of Eden. But then, you see, I was at the age of 12 or 13, and I had an older brother, seven years older than me, and um, there was only two, two uh, children in my, my family. And the tension of the two brothers and the father were all there in the film, the family tensions. And that just spoke to me as if nothing else ever did. And as I slowly became aware that I could maybe make movies eventually about nine, ten years later, those were the basis of where I came from. They were intrinsic. Uh, they were absorbed by me. Not to the extent where you say my favorite film is on the waterfront or East of Eden. No, I don't have to. I don't have to. There are things in the films I disagree with. You know, it doesn't matter. He did something that was suddenly, uh, it was the genesis of everything I do. And it turns out also Bob De Niro and Harvey Keitel and a few others, especially Bob. And so uh, when then you had the influx of uh, the foreign cinema and the cameras, you see, you still couldn't, no matter what you saw up there, you couldn't, where can I get Marlon Brando? I can't get Marlon Brando to act in the film. And how much, that camera is so big. How, where are you going to get Boris Kaufman to come down and shoot it? The great Boris Kaufman? You can't. So how are you going to make pictures? Forget it. That's just think of that in your mind as, as inspiration. Then all of a sudden, this guy Cassavetti started making pictures with a 16-millimeter camera in the village and then in L.A. eventually, you know. And, and he, I said, well, we can make up our own actors. We can get our own actors. Okay, it won't be Brando, but, you know, we can, maybe some actor really be young and we can all move together and make similar kinds of films. Or not similar kinds of films, our own way, with that as inspiration. And then finally, of course, the French and Italian New Wave, all around the same time as Cassavetti's, brought it all home. That was the key thing and uh, sort of uh, remained that way. But as I say, Bertolucci is uh, an inspiration over the years, but in a rarefied world, a world that I know nothing about. Last question. All right. Um, would you like it, Marshall? Um, what effect do your films have you after you've made them? Have on? I'm sorry? What, what effect uh, emotionally, personally, do your films have on you after you've made them 5, 10, 15 years later? Um, do you watch them? Well, the one, I really, quite honestly, the emotional effect to my films after I made them, I, uh, I tried making Raging Bull so that I would go through that, the process he went through and, and reach a sort of uh, uh, serenity at the end of his life, enough for him to recite, you know, the speech by Bud Schulberg and On the Waterfront, which, by the way, was based on reality. Jake LaMotta did do that in his, in his stage act. We originally had him doing the Shakespeare part, Othello, but Michael Powell read it and said to us, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not you, you boys. You can't, can't do uh, Shakespeare. Not that you can't do it, but you shouldn't do it because that's not you. And um, De Niro said, yeah, you're right. I said, the iconography is on the waterfront. I said, yeah, but then we have the problem of Bob De Niro doing Jake LaMotta doing Marlon Brando. Ooh, how do you do that? And, uh, but I wanted to get to that space that, that he was in. Not that I wanted to get to that place that he was in in front of the mirror, but I couldn't at the end of that film. That film wound me up even more uh, emotionally. and uh, um, uh, It took another few years, other, other films. Uh, in short, I really don't look at the films after I make them that much, very, very little. I'll look at certain scenes, Raging Bull, the boxing scenes maybe, and the whole movie sequence. Uh, the other's too painful. It's too emotional, and it's too close, too close for comfort. And I just don't like to look at it. Kundun is the only one, I think, because it, it creates a serenity, I think, that an acceptance and helps you get through certain things. I was making Kundun. There was a lot of changes in my life. My mother finally died. at The, right at the, the shooting was finished, but I was in Wazazat. She was dying in New York. You know, so it was, it was a very, it was very close to my family. So um, it was a miracle that the film sort of fell into my lap uh, to be made at that time in my life because it prepared me for a lot of changes. 
But that's probably the only one I would look at. Uh, the rest I look at maybe sections here and there, mainly for the music. I like the music. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.